Chapter Eleven, Part Three of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter Eleven, Part Three. But the next day she knew he had gone. Her glory had partly died down, but never from her memory. It was too real. Yet it was gone by, leaving a wistfulness. A deeper yearning came into her soul, a new reserve. She shrank from touch and question. She was very proud, but very new and very sensitive. Oh, that no one should lay hands on her! She was happier running on by herself. Oh, it was a joy to run along the lanes without seeing things, yet being with them. It was such a joy to be alone with all one's riches. The holidays came when she was free. She spent most of her time running on by herself, curled up in a squirrel place in the garden, lying in a hammock in the coppice, while the birds came near, near, so near. Oh, in rainy weather she flitted to the marsh and lay hidden with her book in a hayloft. All the time she dreamed of him, sometimes definitely, but when she was happiest, only vaguely. He was the warm colouring of her dreams. He was the hot blood beating within them. When she was less happy, out of sorts, she pondered over his appearance, his clothes, the buttons with his regimental badge which he had given her, or she tried to imagine his life in barracks, or she conjured up a vision of herself as she appeared in his eyes. His birthday was in August, and she spent some pains on making him a cake. She felt that it would not be in good taste for her to give him a present. Their correspondence was brief, mostly an exchange of postcards, not at all frequent. But with her cake, she must send him a letter. Dear Anton, the sunshine has come back specially for your birthday. I think, I made the cake myself, and wish you many happy returns of the day. Don't eat it if it is not good. Mother hopes you will come and see us when you are near enough. I am, your sincere friend, Ursula Brangwen. It bored her to write a letter, even to him. After all, writing words on paper had nothing to do with him and her. The fine weather had set in. The cutting machine went on from dawn till sunset, chattering round the fields. She heard from Skrebensky. He too was on duty in the country, on Salisbury Plain. He was now a second lieutenant in a field troop. He would have a few days off shortly, and would come to the marsh for the wedding. Fred Brangwen was going to marry a schoolmistress out of Ilkston as soon as corn harvest was at an end. The dim blue and gold of a hot, sweet autumn saw the close of the corn harvest. To Ursula, it was as if the world had opened its softest, purest flower, its chicory flower, its meadow saffron. The sky was blue and sweet. The yellow leaves down the lane seemed like free, wandering flowers as they chittered round the feet. Making a keen, poignant, almost unbearable music to her heart, and the scents of autumn were like a summer madness to her. She fled away from the little purple-red button chrysanthemums like a frightened dryad. The bright yellow little chrysanthemums smelled so strong; her feet seemed to dither in a drunken dance. Then her uncle Tom appeared, always like the cynical Bacchus in the picture. He would have a jolly wedding, a harvest supper, and a wedding feast in one. 
a tent in the home close, and a band for dancing, and a great feast out of doors. Fred demurred, but Tom must be satisfied. Also Laura, a handsome, clever girl, the bride, she also must have a great and jolly feast. It appealed to her educated sense. She had been to Salisbury Training College, knew folk songs, and Morris dancing. So the preparations were begun, directed by Tom Brangwen. A marquee was set up on the home close. Two large bonfires were prepared. Musicians were hired, feast made ready. Skrebensky was to come, arriving in the morning. Ursula had a new white dress of soft crepe and a white hat. She liked to wear white. With her black hair and clear golden skin she looked southern, or rather tropical, like a creole. She wore no color whatsoever. She trembled that day as she appeared to go down to the wedding. She was to be a bridesmaid. Skrebensky would not arrive till afternoon. The wedding was at two o'clock. As the wedding party returned home, Skrebensky stood in the parlor at the marsh. Through the window he saw Tom Brangwen, who was best man, coming up the garden path, most elegant in cutaway coat and white slip and spats, with Ursula laughing on his arm. Tom Brangwen was handsome, with his womanish coloring, and dark eyes, and black close-cut mustache, but there was something subtly coarse and suggestive about him, for all his beauty. His strange bestial nostrils opened so hard and wide, and his well-shaped head, almost disquieting in its nakedness, rather bald from the front, and all its soft fullness betrayed. Skrebensky saw the man rather than the woman. She saw only the slender, unchangeable youth waiting there inscrutable, like her fate. He was beyond her with his loose, slightly horsey appearance that made him seem very manly and foreign, yet his face was smooth and soft and impressionable. She shook hands with him, and her voice was like the rousing of a bird startled by the dawn. "'Isn't it nice,' she cried, "'to have a wedding?' There were bits of coloured confetti lodged on her dark hair. Again the confusion came over him, as if he were losing himself and becoming all vague, undefined, inchoate. Yet he wanted to be hard, manly, horsey, and he followed her. There was a light tea, and the guests scattered. The real feast was for the evening.' Ursula walked out with Skrebensky through the stackyard to the fields and up the embankment to the canal side. The new corn stacks were big and golden as they went by. An army of white geese marched aside in braggart protest. Ursula was light as a white ball of down. Skrebensky drifted beside her, indefinite. His old form loosened, and another self, gray, vague, drifting out as from a bud. They talked lightly of nothing. The blue way of the canal wound softly between the autumn hedges, on towards the greenness of a small hill. On the left was the whole black agitation of colliery and railway, and the town which rose on its hill, the church tower topping all. The round white dot of the clock on the tower was distinct in the evening light. That way, Ursula felt, was the way to London, through the grim, alluring seethe of the town. On the other hand was the evening, mellow over the green water meadows and the winding alder trees beside the river and the pale stretches of stubble beyond. There the evening glowed softly, 
and even a peewit was flapping in solitude and peace. Ursula and Anton Skrebensky walked along the ridge of the canal between. The berries on the hedges were crimson and bright red above the leaves. The glow of evening and the wheeling of the solitary peewit and the faint cry of the birds came to meet the shuffling noise of the pits, the dark fuming stress of the town opposite, and they too walked the blue strip of waterway, the ribbon of sky between. He was looking, Ursula thought, very beautiful, because of a flush of sunburn on his hands and face. He was telling her how he had learned to shoe horses and select cattle fit for killing. "'Do you like to be a soldier?' she asked. "'I am not exactly a soldier,' he replied. "'But you only do things for wars,' she said. "'Yes.' "'Would you like to go to war?' "'I?' "'Well, it would be exciting. "'If there were a war, I would want to go.' "'A strange, distracted feeling came over her, "'a sense of potent unrealities. "'Why would you want to go?' I should be doing something. It would be genuine. It's a sort of toy life, as it is. But what would you be doing if you went to war? I would be making railways or bridges, working like a nigger. But you'd only make them to be pulled down again when the armies had done with them. It seems just as much a game. If you call war a game, what is it? It's about the most serious business there is, fighting. A sense of hard separateness came over her. "'Why is fighting more serious than anything else?' she asked. "'You either kill or get killed, and I suppose it is serious enough, killing. "'But when you're dead you don't matter any more,' she said. "'He was silenced for a moment. "'But the result matters,' he said. "'It matters whether we settle the Mahdi or not. "'Not to you, nor me. "'We don't care about Khartoum.' You want to have room to live in, and somebody has to make room. But I don't want to live in the desert of Sahara, do you? she replied, laughing with antagonism. I don't, but we've got to back up those who do. Why have we? Where is the nation if we don't? But we aren't the nation. There are heaps of other people who are the nation. They might say they weren't either. "'Well, if everybody said it, there wouldn't be a nation. "'But I should still be myself,' she asserted brilliantly. "'You wouldn't be yourself if there were no nation. "'Why not? "'Because you'd just be a prey to everybody and anybody. "'How a prey? "'They'd come and take everything you'd got.' "'Well, they couldn't take much even then. "'I don't care what they take. "'I'd rather have a robber who carried me off "'than a millionaire who gave me everything you can buy.' "'That's because you are a romanticist.' "'Yes, I am. I want to be romantic. "'I hate houses that never go away, "'and people just living in the houses. "'It's all so stiff and stupid. "'I hate soldiers. They are stiff and wooden. "'What do you fight for, really?' "'I would fight for the nation. "'For all that, you aren't the nation. "'What would you do for yourself?' "'I belong to the nation,' and must do my duty by the nation. But when it didn't need your services in particular, when there is no fighting, what would you do then? He was irritated. I would do what everybody else does. What? Nothing. I would be in readiness for when I was needed. The answer came in exasperation. 
"'It seems to me,' she answered, "'as if you weren't anybody, "'as if there weren't anybody there where you are.' "'Are you anybody, really? "'You'd seem like nothing to me.' "'They had walked till they had reached a wharf "'just above a lock. "'There an empty barge, painted with a red and yellow cabin hood, "'but with a long coal-black hold, was lying moored. "'A man, lean and grimy, was sitting on a box "'against the cabin side by the door.' "'smoking and nursing a baby that was wrapped in a drab shawl "'and looking into the glow of evening. "'A woman bustled out, sent a pail dashing into the canal, "'drew her water and bustled in again. "'Children's voices were heard. "'A thin blue smoke ascended from the cabin chimney. "'There was a smell of cooking. "'Ursula, white as a moth, lingered to look. "'Skrebensky lingered by her. "'The man glanced up. "'Good evening,' he called. "'half impudent, half attracted. "'He had blue eyes which glanced impudently from his grimy face. "'Good evening,' said Ursula, delighted. "'Isn't it nice now?' "'Eh,' said the man, "'very nice. "'His mouth was red under his ragged, sandy moustache. "'His teeth were white as he laughed. "'Oh, but,' stammered Ursula, laughing, "'it is. Why do you say it as if it weren't?' "'Appen for them as his child-nursing it's none so rosy.' "'May I look inside your barge?' asked Ursula. "'There's nobody'll stop you. You come if you like.' The barge lay at the opposite bank at the wharf. It was the Annabelle, belonging to J. Ruth of Lowborough. The man watched Ursula closely from his keen, twinkling eyes. His fair hair was wispy on his grimed forehead. Two dirty children appeared to see who was talking. Ursula glanced at the great locked gates. They were shut, and the water was sounding, spurting, and trickling down in the gloom beyond. On this side the bright water was almost to the top of the gate. She went boldly across and round to the wharf. Stooping from the bank, she peeped into the cabin, where was a red glow of fire and the shadowy figure of a woman. She did want to go down. "'You'll mess your frock,' said the man, warningly. "'I'll be careful,' she answered. "'May I come?' "'Eh, come if you like.' She gathered her skirts, lowered her foot to the side of the boat, and leapt down, laughing. Coal dust flew up. The woman came to the door. She was plump and sandy-haired, young, with an odd, stubby nose. "'Oh, you will make a mess of yourself,' she cried, surprised and laughing with a little wonder. "'I did want to see. Isn't it lovely living on a barge?' asked Ursula. "'I don't live on one altogether,' said the woman cheerfully. "'She's got her parlour and her plush suite in Lowborough,' said her husband, with just pride. Ursula peeped into the cabin, where saucepans were boiling and some dishes were on the table. It was very hot. Then she came out again. The man was talking to the baby. It was a blue-eyed, fresh-faced thing, with floss of red-gold hair. "'Is it a boy or a girl?' she asked. "'It's a girl. Aren't you a girl, eh?' he shouted at the infant, shaking his head. "'Its little face wrinkled up into the oddest, funniest smile. "'Oh!' cried Ursula. "'Oh, the dear! Oh, how nice when she laughs!' "'She'll laugh hard enough,' said the father. "'What is her name?' asked Ursula. "'She hasn't got a name. She's not worth one,' said the man. "'Are you, you fag-end of nothing?' he shouted to the baby. "'The baby laughed. "'No, we've been that busy we never took her to the registry office,' came the woman's voice. 
She was born on the boat here. But you know what you're going to call her? asked Ursula. We did think of Gladys Emily, said the mother. We thought of now to the sort, said the father. Hark at him. What do you want? cried the mother in exasperation. She'll be called Annabel after the boat she was born on. She's not so there, said the mother, viciously defiant. The father sat in humorous malice, grinning. Well, you'll see, he said. And Ursula could tell, by the woman's vibrating exasperation, that he would never give way. They're all nice names, she said. Call her Gladys Annabel, Emily. Nay, that's heavy laden, if you like, he answered. You see, cried the woman, he's that pig-headed. And she's so nice, and she laughs, and she hasn't even got a name, crooned Ursula to the child. Let me hold her, she added. He yielded her the child that smelt of babies, but it had such blue, wide, china-blue eyes, and it laughed so oddly, with such a taking grimace, Ursula loved it. She cooed and talked to it. It was such an odd, exciting child. "'What's your name?' the man suddenly asked of her. "'My name is Ursula, Ursula Brangwen,' she replied. "'Ursula!' he exclaimed, dumbfounded. "'There was a Saint Ursula.' "'It's a very old name,' she added hastily, in justification. "'Hey, mother!' he called. There was no answer. "'Pem!' he called. "'Can't you hear?' "'What?' came the short answer. "'What about Ursula?' he grinned. "'What about what?' came the answer, and the woman appeared in the doorway, ready for combat. "'Ursula! It's the lass's name there,' he said gently. The woman looked the young girl up and down. Evidently she was attracted by her slim, graceful, new beauty, her effect of white elegance, and her tender way of holding the child. "'Why, how do you write it?' the mother asked, awkward now she was touched. Ursula spelled out her name. The man looked at the woman. A bright, confused flush came over the mother's face, a sort of luminous shyness. "'It's not a common name, is it?' she exclaimed, excited as by an adventure." "'Are you going to have it, then?' he asked. "'I'd rather have it than Annabelle,' she said decisively. "'And I'd rather have it than Gladys Emler,' he replied. There was a silence. Ursula looked up. "'Will you really call her Ursula?' she asked. "'Ursula Ruth,' replied the man, laughing vainly, as pleased as if he had found something. It was now Ursula's turn to be confused. "'It does sound awfully nice,' she said. I must give her something, and I haven't got anything at all. She stood in her white dress, wondering, down there in the barge. The lean man sitting near to her watched her, as if she were a strange being, as if she lit up his face. His eyes smiled on her boldly, and yet with exceeding admiration underneath. "'Could I give her my necklace?' she said. It was the little necklace made of pieces of amethyst and topaz and pearl and crystal— "'strung at intervals on a little golden chain "'which her Uncle Tom had given her. "'She was very fond of it. "'She looked at it lovingly when she had taken it from her neck. "'Is it valuable?' the man asked her curiously. "'I think so,' she replied. "'The stones and pearl are real. "'It is worth three or four pounds,' said Skrebensky from the wharf above. "'Ursula could tell he disapproved of her. "'I must give it to your baby. May I?' she said to the bargee. He flushed and looked away into the evening. Nay, he said, it's not for me to say. 
"'What would your father and mother say?' cried the woman curiously from the door. "'It is my own,' said Ursula, and she dangled the little glittering string before the baby. The infant spread its little fingers, but it could not grasp. Ursula closed the tiny hand over the jewel. The baby waved the bright ends of the string. Ursula had given her necklace away. She felt sad, but she did not want it back. The jewel swung from the baby's hand and fell in a little heap on the cold, dusty bottom of the barge. The man groped for it with a kind of careful reverence. Ursula noticed the coarsened, blunted fingers groping at the little jeweled heap. The skin was red on the back of the hand. The fair hairs glistened stiffly. It was a thin, sinewy, capable hand, nevertheless, and Ursula liked it. He took up the necklace carefully and blew the coal-dust from it as it lay in the hollow of his hand. He seemed still and attentive. He held out his hand with the necklace shining small in its hard black hollow. "'Take it back,' he said. Ursula hardened with a kind of radiance. "'No,' she said. "'It belongs to little Ursula.' And she went to the infant and fastened the necklace round its warm, soft, weak little neck. There was a moment of confusion. Then the father bent over his child. "'What do you say?' he said. "'Do you say thank you? Do you say thank you, Ursula?' "'Her name's Ursula now,' said the mother, smiling a little bit ingratiatingly from the door, and she came out to examine the jewel on the child's neck. "'It is Ursula, isn't it?' said Ursula Brangwen. The father looked up at her with an intimate, half-gallant, half-impudent, but wistful look. His captive soul loved her, but his soul was captive, he knew, always. She wanted to go. He set a little ladder for her to climb up to the wharf. She kissed the child, which was in its mother's arms. Then she turned away. The mother was effusive. The man stood silent by the ladder. Ursula joined Skrebensky. The two young figures crossed the lock above the shining yellow water. The barge-man watched them go. "'I loved them,' she was saying. "'He was so gentle, oh, so gentle, and the baby was such a dear.' "'Was he gentle?' said Skrebensky. "'The woman had been a servant, I'm sure of that.' Ursula winced. "'But I loved his impudence. It was so gentle underneath.' She went hastening on, gladdened by having met the grimy, lean man with the ragged moustache. He gave her a pleasant, warm feeling. He made her feel the richness of her own life. Skrebensky somehow had created a deadness round her, a sterility, as if the world were ashes. They said very little as they hastened home to the big supper. He was envying the lean father of three children for his impudent directness and his worship of the woman in Ursula— a worship of body and soul together, the man's body and soul wistful and worshipping the body and spirit of the girl, with a desire that knew the inaccessibility of its object, but was only glad to know that the perfect thing existed, glad to have had a moment of communion. Why could not he himself desire a woman so? Why did he never really want a woman, not with the whole of him, never loved, never worshipped, only just physically wanted her? But he would want her with his body, let his soul do as it would. A kind of flame of physical desire was gradually beating up in the marsh, kindled by Tom Brangwen and by the fact of the wedding of Fred, the shy, fair, stiff-set farmer with the handsome, half-educated girl. Tom Brangwen, with all his secret power, seemed to fan the flame that was rising. 
The bride was strongly attracted by him, and he was exerting his influence on another beautiful fair girl, chill and burning as the sea, who said witty things which he appreciated, making her glint with more like phosphorescence, and her greenish eyes seemed to rock a secret, and her hands, like mother-of-pearl, seemed luminous, transparent, as if the secret were burning visible in them. At the end of supper, during dessert, the music began to play, violins and flutes. Everybody's face was lit up. A glow of excitement prevailed. When the little speeches were over, and the port remained unreached for any more, those who wished were invited out to the open for coffee. The night was warm. Bright stars were shining, the moon was not yet up, and under the stars burned two great red flameless fires, and round these lights and lanterns hung, the marquis stood open before a fire with its lights inside. The young people flocked out into the mysterious night. There was sound of laughter and voices and a scent of coffee. The farm buildings loomed dark in the background. Figures, pale and dark, flitted about, intermingling. The red fire glinted on a white or a silken skirt. The lanterns gleamed on the transient heads of the wedding guests. To Ursula it was wonderful. She felt she was a new being. The darkness seemed to breathe like the sides of some great beast. The haystacks loomed half-revealed, a crowd of them, a dark fecund lair just behind. Waves of delirious darkness ran through her soul. She wanted to let go. She wanted to reach and be amongst the flashing stars. She wanted to race with her feet and be beyond the confines of this earth. She was mad to be gone. It was as if a hound were straining on the leash, ready to hurl itself after a nameless quarry into the dark. And she was the quarry, and she was also the hound. The darkness was passionate and breathing with immense, unperceived heaving. It was waiting to receive her in her flight. And how could she start, and how could she let go? She must leap from the known into the unknown. Her feet and hands beat like a madness. Her breast strained as if in bonds. The music began, and the bonds began to slip. Tom Brangwen was dancing with the bride, quick and fluid, and as if in another element, inaccessible as the creatures that move in the water. Fred Brangwen went in with another partner. The music came in waves. One couple after another was washed and absorbed into the deep underwater of the dance. "'Come,' said Ursula to Skrebensky, laying her hand on his arm. At the touch of her hand on his arm, his consciousness melted away from him. He took her into his arms, as if into the sure, subtle power of his will, and they became one movement, one dual movement, dancing on the slippery grass. It would be endless, this movement. It would continue forever. It was his will and her will, locked in a trance of motion, two wills locked in one motion, yet never fusing, never yielding one to the other. It was a glaucous, intertwining, delicious flux and contest in flux. They were both absorbed into a profound silence, into a deep, fluid, underwater energy that gave them unlimited strength. All the dancers were waving intertwined in the flux of music. Shadowy couples passed and repassed before the fire. The dancing feet danced silently by into the darkness. It was a vision of the depths of the underworld, under the great flood. There was a wonderful rocking of the darkness, slowly, a great, slow swinging of the whole night, with the music playing lightly on the surface, 
making the strange ecstatic rippling on the surface of the dance, but underneath only one great flood heaving slowly backwards to the verge of oblivion, slowly forward to the other verge, the heart sweeping along each time and tightening with anguish as the limit was reached and the movement at crises turned and swept back. As the dance surged heavily on, Ursula was aware of some influence looking in upon her. Something was looking at her. Some powerful, glowing sight was looking right into her, not upon her, but right at her. Out of the great distance and yet imminent, the powerful, overwhelming watch was kept upon her and she danced on and on with Skrebensky, while the great white watching continued, balancing all in its revelation. "'The moon has risen,' said Anton, as the music ceased, and they found themselves suddenly stranded, like bits of jetsam on a shore. She turned and saw a great white moon looking at her over the hill, and her breast opened to it. She was cleaved like a transparent jewel to its light. She stood filled with the full moon, offering herself, her two breasts opened to make way for it, her body opened wide like a quivering anemone, a soft, dilated invitation touched by the moon. She wanted the moon to fill into her. She wanted more, more communion with the moon, consummation. But Skrebensky put his arm round her and led her away. He put a big, dark cloak round her and sat holding her hand whilst the moonlight streamed above the glowing fires. She was not there. Presently she sat under the cloak with Skrebensky holding her hand, but her naked self was away there, beating upon the moonlight, dashing the moonlight with her breasts and her knees, in meeting, in communion. She half started, to go, in actuality, to fling away her clothing and flee away, away from this dark confusion and chaos of people, to the hill and the moon, but the people stood round her like stones, like magnetic stones, and she could not go, in actuality. Skrebensky, like a lodestone, weighed on her. The weight of his presence detained her. She felt the burden of him, the blind, persistent, inert burden. He was inert, and he weighed upon her. She sighed in pain. Oh, for the coolness and entire liberty and brightness of the moon! Oh, for the cold liberty to be herself, to do entirely as she liked. She wanted to get right away. She felt like bright metal weighted down by dark, impure magnetism. He was the dross. People were the dross. If she could but get away to the clean, free moonlight. "'Don't you like me tonight?' said his low voice, the voice of the shadow over her shoulder. She clenched her hands in the dewy brilliance of the moon, as if she were mad. "'Don't you like me to-night?' repeated the soft voice. And she knew that if she turned she would die. A strange rage filled her, a rage to tear things asunder. Her hands felt destructive like metal blades of destruction. "'Let me alone,' she said. A darkness, an obstinacy, settled on him, too, in a kind of inertia. He sat inert beside her. She threw off her cloak and walked towards the moon, silver-white herself. He followed her closely. The music began again, and the dance. He appropriated her. There was a fierce, white, cold passion in her heart, but he held her close and danced with her, always present like a soft weight upon her, bearing her down was his body against her as they danced. He held her very close so that she could feel his body, the weight of him sinking, settling upon her, 
overcoming her life and energy, making her inert along with him. She felt his hands pressing behind her, upon her, but still in her body was the subdued, cold, indomitable passion. She liked the dance. It eased her, put her into a sort of trance, but it was only a kind of waiting, of using up the time that intervened between her and her pure being. She left herself against him. She let him exert all his power over her, to bear her down. She received all the force of his power. She even wished he might overcome her. She was cold and unmoved as a pillar of salt. His will was set and straining with all its tension to encompass him and compel her. If he could only compel her, he seemed to be annihilated. She was cold and hard and compact of brilliance as the moon itself, and beyond him as the moonlight was beyond him, never to be grasped or known. If he could only set a bond round her and compel her, so they danced four or five dances, always together, always his will becoming more tense, his body more subtle playing upon her, and still he had not got her. She was hard and bright as ever, intact. But he must weave himself round her, enclose her, enclose her in a net of shadow, of darkness, so she would be like a bright creature gleaming in a net of shadows, caught. Then he would have her, he would enjoy her. How he would enjoy her when she was caught! At last, when the dance was over, she would not sit down. She walked away. He came with his arm round her, keeping her upon the movement of his walking. And she seemed to agree. She was bright as a piece of moonlight, as bright as a steel blade. He seemed to be clasping a blade that hurt him. Yet he would clasp her if it killed him. End of chapter 11, part 3